0: Man, would you join me now in prayer? Father God, you are the immortal, invisible creator of the universe. Through you, the world itself was created. Through your son, Jesus Christ, we have our life. And he has united us and all things to himself. And then created a people for himself. It is through his sacrifice that all things will be made right. We don't need to work to make things good or perfect or right, but we can trust that through Jesus' work, that as our head, you, Lord, will make all things right. But we confess that our lives do not always look like we have found our hope and our life in you. Lord, our union with you is not always visible. This world we live in rubs off on us and we resemble it more than we resemble you. While we are called to be made more into your image, the image of the world has a great effect on us. Father God, we pray that we would continue to desire to be made into your image, that we would find our hope and our life in you. Instead of being knit into the world, I pray, we pray, that we are knit into you. Make our lives the passion, Lord, for your glory. And may our heart be your heart, your holiness, our holiness. Lord, we thank you that you have called us and for the salvation that you have given to us. Lord, your generosity should amaze us. Thank you, Lord, also for the gift of new life that you have given to Brad and Samantha Powell. Lord, we thank you for the birth of their daughter Elizabeth Powell last Sunday night. Lord, you have been good in giving them this child. And we pray that they would raise Elizabeth in the fear of you and that they may teach and train her to know you. Give Brad and Samantha wisdom as they navigate being parents and may this bring them closer to you. Finally, Lord, we pray for ourselves. We pray this morning that the word that Hans brings us would impact our hearts and lives and that through the book of Colossians we might come to know you in a more clear way. We ask all of this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Thanks, Nick.
1: You can open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. My wife and I met out in Indiana, even though we were both from Oregon, and one of the first things that we bonded over was the fact that we missed home. More specifically, we bonded over being homesick for what the Pacific Northwest brings. You see, when you grow up here, you become accustomed to the beauty that you get to see every day. In the house that I lived in during the last few years of high school, my backyard was Forest Park. Within Portland city limits, I could walk just up the hill behind my house, and I could see elk crossing through the clearing. Out my front window, I could easily see four to five mountain peaks on a sunny day. In the Northwest, we have the majesty of nature right outside our front door. But when I went to school in the Midwest, I realized the great travesty of how much I took this for granted, because the highest point of elevation there is, as one of my coaches said, the speed bump in the Kmart parking lot. I took for granted the amazing beauty and majesty of what was right around me. Many of you who've lived elsewhere, you know what I'm talking about. But then when I've gone purposefully to experience Mount Hood or the Columbia River or Mount St. Helens or Multnomah Falls, when I'm standing there before them, I can't help but realize the unrivaled enormity. I can't help but realize their supremacy. When you see these enormous wonders of God's creation, we experience their superiority to all other comparable wonders. That's what supremacy is. It's the state or condition of being superior to all others in authority and power and in status. Think back, if you will, for a moment in your own memory of a time when you've come face to face with that kind of unrivaled supremacy, that enormity in your own life. Maybe a time when you had an experience of becoming so tiny that you almost disappeared and where you instantly knew the enormity of God and his creation. Perhaps it drew you to the point of tears because you realized that you were part of something so much bigger and there is one who is infinite in past and infinite in future. In 2007, when Kelly and I were able to go to Israel, Egypt, and Jordan, we toured through Petra, and we were taken aback by the enormity of the canyon that we walked through to get into the city. We were blown away by the buildings carved in the red rock of the surrounding cliffs. But eclipsing all of this was the view that we gained as we hiked to the highest point of Petra, I was able to walk out to a rocky point, overhanging a large drop-off and stand, looking at the various mountain peaks in the wilderness in front of me, and for a split moment, all of life ceased. Everything I knew became infinitesimally small, and I stood for a moment soaking in the enormity of the very wilderness that housed Israel for 40 years. In that moment, I experienced the majestic supremacy of the Almighty Creator God. The supremacy of the wilderness in front of me was unrivaled in its beauty, its vastness, and its enormity. And for those who have experienced Mount Everest or Yosemite or swam with blue whales or those who have been privileged enough to go to space and see the enormity of the universe and the small stature of earth in its midst, all these have seen and experienced the incomparable, the unrivaled, and the unparalleled. This is what it is to know and experience something that is supreme in its nature. Nothing else can compare. This morning, dear friends, my prayer, as we read the Word of God through the letter to the Colossians, is that we will have a similar experience as we take in Christ's unrivaled supremacy. Christ's unrivaled supremacy. Last week in Colossians, we read and experienced the prayer of Paul for the church at Colossae, and by extension, every local church since. He prayed that they would be filled with the knowledge of God and of God's will so that they might walk in a manner worthy of God and his holiness. Paul prayed that each of our brothers and sisters in the church and our brothers and sisters in the church across the world would know God deeply. To know God though, how is that possible? For the word is clear that God the Father is spirit, and those that look upon the fullness of his nature are instantly destroyed by the piercing power of his holiness, purity, his supremacy. For it's the very nature of God that he is supreme. That's what makes him God, right? He is preeminent and the highest and greatest, the source of all in the universe. No other being can claim the same position or role. Well, today, we will see that Paul now moves into what it is to know God. He understands this fact, and yet he says, you can know God. And he does so by drawing our attention to the one who perfectly characterizes all of the enormity of the ancient of days, and yet does so in a way where we are not destroyed, but rather, we have been made new and been drawn into intimate relationship with him so that we are now constantly in his presence. And while he is supreme, he has become our savior and our friend. Unfortunately, the local church at Colossae had grown blind to the majesty of God in their midst. And rather than see the beauty of Christ that existed within God's word and within the local church, they had grown bored and moved on to other spiritual novelties. They were like a Pacific Northwesterner who becomes enamored with the minuscule while forgetting the majestic that surrounds them. And so Paul draws their eyes back to that which first drew them in, the enormity and unrivaled supremacy of Christ. The container in which Paul provides this beautiful truth is, in and of itself, unrivaled as well. Many believe this to be an er early church poem or hymn meant to capture theology that could be embedded in the psyche of the early church, almost as a creed. And you will notice, for example, as we go through it, a repetitive rhythm that is meant to be poetic. And the repetition of the structure using phrases such as by him, in him, through him, and for him. And this whole section, friends, it is about him, not about us. Praise God for that. But all of this only serves to show the beauty of the text as a container. The core of what Paul is doing is reminding the Colossians that when you have experienced the supremacy of Christ There remains no other spiritual pursuit. You have reached the pinnacle. One's job is to simply sit at that point in the presence of his greatness and let it overwhelm us so that we might disappear. And all that remains is the beauty of Christ. To turn from Christ's unrivaled supremacy in pursuit of something else to experience spiritual fullness is simply foolishness. It's as if we were turning to abuse in order to know love, or to ugliness in order to understand beauty. As we stand at the base of the colossal mountain peak of this reminder in Colossians, I pray that it would eclipse our hearts this morning and help us to step aside so that Christ might emerge as Lord and King of Mission Fellowship, Lord and King of our homes, and Lord and King over each of our hearts. Let's begin now by reading our text in Colossians 1, 15 through 23. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father God, as we stand before, as I said, this mountain peak, Lord, we see your enormity. We see your power. And Lord, it requires us to take a moment to pause and realize that we, that I, am a man of unclean lips, and we are a people of unclean lips. To even speak your word, knowing how little we have given you the primacy of our life, how little we have pointed to you as supreme in our life, Lord, it is sheer hypocrisy. Forgive us, Lord, that our lives do not speak to the truth we have just read, But help us, Lord, as people needy for your grace and your mercy and your strength. Help us as blind people looking to understand what is your supremacy. Help us to see it this morning and help me as one of unclean lips and an unclean heart. Help me to speak your truth in a way that edifies this church and draws us closer to you and gives you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Friends, there is a large part of me that wants to simply let this section sit because any words I add, well, it's just going to cheapen the effect. I even thought at one point about putting up a 15-minute sermon from John Piper speaking of the supremacy of God and just walking off the stage. (laughs) And I would highly suggest you go look that up. It's an amazing section of uh, preaching. But I'm not here to compete with John Piper. I'm not here to compete with anyone. I'm here to point us to the Word of God, and hopefully I can do an adequate job in that. And so may the Lord help me as I attempt to point out what's already clear in this work of beauty. The first thing that we see this morning in the first four verses is the unrivaled supremacy of Christ. The unrivaled supremacy of Christ. This fledgling church in Colossae was wrestling with the intrusion of pagan folk religion and Jewish mysticism focused on angel worship and what would turn into Gnostic thought. All of these ideas were coming together and working its way out in heresy in the midst of the church. The common denominator in both the pagan and Gnostic philosophies was a view of the spiritual world as one full of a plethora of spiritual beings, a polytheistic spiritual realm, if you will. And that was not far off of the Jewish mysticism, which, while monotheistic, looked at angels as basically deified as well. And so Paul is pointedly fighting against these false and satanic views by stating clearly that anything and everything in the spiritual world is below and subordinate to the supremacy of Christ. Paul is picking up this thought from verse 13, in which he notes that God the Father, the Ancient of Days, has worked deliverance for us from the kingdom of darkness. He has done so through his beloved son, Jesus Christ, and this Jesus is the he of verse 15. From this point on, Paul will poetically speak of seven statements of Christ's supremacy that establish him as the height of perfection in creation, the source from which all creation originates, and the sovereign authority over it all. And then he will go on to speak of seven more qualifications, of Jesus as supreme in the new creation, As the one who has reconciled this old broken creation to God the Father and brought us into redemption. In doing so, Paul is firmly establishing the Christology of the early church. He is helping the early church understand who Christ is. And this would be the basis for many of the early church councils as they fought against heresy. So let's now look at each of these qualities of supremacy in turn. First, we see that Jesus is supreme because he is the creator God himself. Paul writes, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The word in the Greek there is rendered "image." that's rendered image is icon, from which we get the word icon. It speaks to the fact that Christ, in his preexistent, and then in his ascended and enthroned state is the exact material representation of the ancient of days, Yahweh himself. And the author of Hebrews states these same truths well in the first part of his book when he says this in Hebrews 1.3, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. In other words, the monotheistic and Jewish Saul of Tarsus, who is now the Paul the Apostle to the Gentiles, is proclaiming boldly that Jesus Christ is indeed God himself. And therefore, Jesus is supreme in his divinity. Jesus is supreme in his divinity. But second, Paul goes on Jesus is supreme over all creation because he is the perfect, pre existent Adam. Paul states that uh, this in that Jesus was the firstborn of all creation. This word firstborn in the Greek is prototokos. And in Greek, it simply means existing prior to something else, meaning it was from himself as a prototype that Jesus fashioned humanity. Unfortunately, a misunderstanding of the translation of that word firstborn led an elder in the early church, a bishop named Arius, to teach a false theology that was later called Arianism. And this heresy denied the divine nature of Christ and taught that he was instead a created being like Lucifer. It is Arianism that has been rebirthed into Jehovah's Witnesses and their theology that Jesus is not equal to the Father. That is why it is a cult and a heresy. Understanding the errors of the early church and church history matters, does it not? But when we understand the context, it's easy to clarify what this word firstborn means. The ancient belief was that the firstborn was preeminent in the womb of the mother over all future siblings. And it was tied heavily to the idea of inheritance laws and the fact that the firstborn son would be the head of the household should the father die. So this word is less a matter of status, of being created, and more a matter of supremacy, authority, protection, and preexistence. It is, in fact, stating clearly that Christ was the blueprint from which Adam was created. And just as Jesus is the exact imprint of the Father, Adam was created to be the image of Jesus. Recall Genesis 1:26, when the Trinity says, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Jesus is supreme over all mankind because he is the prototype from which mankind, Adam in the Hebrew... That's the word for mankind in Hebrew. He is the prototype from which all mankind was created. Jesus is supreme in his perfection as the height of mankind. Next, Paul goes on, third, to say that Jesus is supreme as the preexistent wisdom. Not only was he the preexistent Adam, the blueprint, if you will, the prototype, but he is the preexistent wisdom of God from which the cosmos was made. This might sound familiar to you ladies who are going through the John Bible study. Paul says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. He says that right there in verse 16. All things were created by him in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. And then he goes on to discuss what those were. But to the ancient Hebrews and ancient Greeks, it was foundational to think of the kernel of creation as a type of wisdom spoken out into existence. You see, they were not a materially obsessed culture like we are that has a secular belief of a big bang, a couple of material molecules going around the cosmos and eventually hitting each other and creating the universe as we know it. The Greeks and the Hebrews were more philosophical and spiritual, and thus creation came into existence from the essence and seed of wisdom. It is wisdom, for example, that is speaking in Proverbs, Proverbs 8, 22 through 23, and claiming the work of creation. Listen to this. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. It is from this wisdom that all was created. Why is the world so orderly in its laws of physics? Because it was created from the innate wisdom of God. It made sense. It had order. Only humanity brought in the chaos. And it's the same idea that prompted the Apostle uh, John to say a similar statement about the logos, the word, in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word. In Greek, that's logos. It means the kernel of thought, the motivation, the muse, if you will, from which all creation was made. And the Word was with God, the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. This is speaking of Jesus Christ. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Very similar to what Paul is saying in Colossians. And notice the fullness language that Paul uses. He's using this word all, everything. It was all created through Christ. Christ is the embodiment of wisdom from which all creation was made. The creation you can see with your eyes and that which you cannot see, even at the molecular level. The material, the spiritual, the large and the small. Everything originated out of the wisdom of God that is encapsulated in Jesus Christ. Jesus is supreme in his wisdom. Amen? Fourth, Paul goes on, and says that Jesus is supreme in his pre-existent sovereignty. Another way to say this is that he is the source from which the existence of his kingdom of the cosmos was originated. Paul says in verse 16 that by him all things were created, visible and invisible, and he goes on to say whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. In other words, Jesus is not just at the top of some spiritual hierarchy, and We can fill in underneath him with our, you know, other gods, so to speak, or other spiritual ideas. Uh, he is not uh, just there as the boss above everybody else, but Jesus is the beginning of all spiritual authority. Everyone answers to him, and from him all spiritual authority is distributed. Just as with mankind, there is no authority unless it is given from Christ. The state has no authority elders have no authority, fathers and husbands have no authority unless it is given from Christ and unless Christ is the one empowering that authority. And this very much works with what has already been said in that he is the firstborn of all creation. I noted that this statement is one of authority. Paul is pulling from a well-known psalm here, speaking of the authority of King David as the highest sovereign authority over the people of God. Would you turn with me to Psalm 89, and we'll see where Paul's pulling from here. Psalm 89, starting in verse 19. Give me an amen when you're there. Two of you made it? Give me an amen when you're there. All right, there we go. Starting in 89:19, it says, Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. Notice the Messianic language here, that Jesus is one of us. I have found David my servant with my holy oil. I have anointed him. He was the, the, the uh, image and picture of who this Messiah would be. So that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. Well, wait a minute. Is this speaking of earthly David? I seem to remember a situation where the enemy outwitted him. Don't, don't you? Right? A little thing called Bathsheba Gate. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so verse 22, The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, meaning the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever, and his throne as the days of the heavens. Friends, this is messianic. This is not speaking about earthly David, but this is picturing the messianic kingdom and the one who reigns over it. This messianic psalm is using the picture of David to speak of God's truly holy messianic king to come. It is the same king that is pictured in the vision of Daniel 7 as the son of man is brought and presented as ruler to the ancient of days. You guys remember this from a few, I don't know, a couple of years ago when we did Daniel? Uh, Daniel 7, 13 through 14. I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days. That's the father God. And was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Amen. These prophecies in the Psalms and in Daniel, these guarantees of hope and rejoicing and an unrivaled supreme authority, these have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Amen. The false teachers in Colossae wanted people to continue adding in deities and religious leaders and worship experiences to get spiritual fullness. But Paul points out that Jesus alone is supreme in his authority and sovereignty as king of king and lord of lords over all thrones on earth and in the heavenly realm. Jesus is supreme in his preexistent sovereignty. Well, back in Colossians... We see fifth, that Jesus is supreme in purpose. Jesus is supreme in purpose. Notice Paul's next words at the end of verse 16 and into 17. All things were created through him and for him. Let's just let that sit for a moment. All things, including you and your life, your time, your talent, your treasure, was created through him. And for him. Brothers and sisters, what a freedom it is to realize that the purpose of all creation and the purpose of our own lives is not about my glory or my success or even my fulfillment. To chase after these things as if all creation was initiated for me is foolishness that will lead to destruction. So many of us lead selfish lives and then seem surprised at the end that we are unfulfilled. We are surprised as if creation did not accomplish what it was meant for, which was my happiness, right? But it can never accomplish that, ever, no matter how hard you try or how rich you get or how successful you are, because creation was not designed for your fulfillment. All of creation was made through and for the glory of Christ. He is the motivation behind creation. And he is the completion and fulfillment of creation. And when we adjust our lives to get into that vein of reality, all of a sudden everything makes sense. And life has purpose and fulfillment comes easily. This is what Paul captured so beautifully in his letter to the Ephesians that Janelle just read to us. A little earlier from that reading, he says this in Ephesians 1, 9 through 10. He has been making known to us the mystery of his will, of God's will, according to his purpose. What is this? Which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. What is it? To unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. How on earth do I read into that, that God's purpose and plan is for me to have a good life? When I read that, I wonder how arrogant and narcissistic I am that I can read into God's word that his purpose for creation is for moi. Does that resonate with anyone in here? The exaltation of Jesus and his majesty is the reason for every molecule in existence. That is the reason for your life. That is the reason for my life. And the fulfillment of your life and mine and all of creation is found in his worship. And so Jesus is supreme in purpose, is he not? Well, sixth, Jesus is supreme in his infinite nature. Paul says in verse 17, he is before all things. The Greek phrase is that he is pro-panton. He is before the totality of all that exists. He is God who existed from time immemorial past and will exist into time immemorial future. He is supreme in his infinite nature. And finally, seventh, Paul says that Jesus is supreme in his current reign. He is supreme in his current reign. It was very much part of ancient thought that all protection and provision came from one's king. It was the king that held the kingdom together and kept it from destruction. If you look closely, we still think this about our presidents, and then we're shocked when chaos comes. In this vein of thought, Paul is proclaiming that Jesus alone is the one keeping all creation together. Notice what it says there. All things were created through him and for him. And look at verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the one keeping creation from tearing itself apart in chaos. He alone is holding the chaos monster back and the adversary of God's creation at bay. He alone is holding humanity back from fully engaging its evil intent at destroying itself. He alone is sustaining us by his rain and wind and sunlight. In him alone, all things hold together because Jesus is supreme in his current reign. The unrivaled supremacy of Christ. Friends, Christ is unrivaled in his supremacy over creation Because he is supreme in his divinity, supreme in his purity and perfection, supreme in his wisdom, supreme in his sovereignty and authority, supreme in his purpose, and supreme in his current reign. Long before our sin tainted his good creation, Christ was supreme over it. And it is this fact that allows him to then be supreme over the new creation that was initiated by his life, death, resurrection, ascension, and enthronement. And through this sacrificial work, Paul next declares the unrivaled reconciliation of Christ. The unrivaled reconciliation of Christ. Paul has used this imagery and language in the first section to point to Christ's unrivaled supremacy over the first, the old creation, to substantiate what he will claim next. That Christ is likewise unrivaled in his supremacy over the new creation. If he were not the first supreme over the old creation, he would not have the capability to be the second supreme over the new creation. It is this argument that Paul is using to try and save the Colossians from being pulled into heresy. You see, none of these other Gnostic deities or mystical angels or pagan false gods are able to bring them fullness spiritually because none of them is supreme over creation. And so, what sense does it then make to look to these other false gods to gain the new creation? What sense does it make to look at the next spiritual novelty, the next trend in Christianity? That new religious leader, or that new religious book? It doesn't make any sense. And we see this parallelism between the first creation and the new creation laid out by Paul. You'll see them mirroring each other. For example, in verse 15, it says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, old creation. But then in verse 19, it says, He is the fullness of the Father uh, that dwells in the exalted Christ, the new creation. In verse 15, it says, He is the firstborn of all creation, the old creation. But then verse 18, it says, He is the firstborn of the dead, the resurrection, the new creation. In verse 17, he is before all things. In verse 18, it says he is preeminent over all. In verse 16, all things were created in him, both in heaven and on earth. In verse 19 and 20, all things were reconciled in him, both in heaven and on earth. Paul is intentionally paralleling these to show he is supreme over the old creation. And because of that, he can be supreme and is supreme over the new creation. And so here, Paul puts forth a parallel seven qualities of Christ's supremacy over the new creation, just as he did the seven qualities of Christ's supremacy over the old creation. This supremacy in the new creation is perfectly and sufficiently earned because of his sacrificial death on the cross. Let's look at each one of them now. First, Paul notes in verse 18 that Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He is supreme in his rule over the church. And this was a common metaphor in Paul's day as the Romans and Greek were used to the idea of a society as a, quote, body politic, end quote. It was made up of the members or citizens of that kingdom headed by the Caesar or the king. But this body headed by Christ and ruled through his word stands in stark contrast to the secular body ruled by an earthly leader and ruled through earthly laws. And if you look at chapter 2, 18 through 19 there in Colossians, the Colossians were taking this for granted that he was their head of the church. In 2, 18 through 19, it it says that they were taking false doctrine and accepting it, and it was disconnecting them from the head. Look there at 18 and 19. He says, "...let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind." And not holding fast to the head, from which the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Friends, this is why if you go to a church, or you look at a church or a, a sermon on TV, and there is no mention of Christ as the head of that church, they are not part of the body. They are a false church, because Christ is not their head. It was the same thing that Colossians was dealing with. This shows us that it is only when Christ is lifted up and honored as supreme that the church is nourished and united and grows in sanctification. We as elders can come up with whatever cool spiritual novelty or program or plan we want, but if Christ is not our head, this church will die. It will languish on the vine. Christ alone is supreme in his rule over the church. And we only as a congregation rule well in this church, if we institute and follow the commands of our Lord and supreme King, Jesus Christ. Well, secondly, Jesus is supreme in the new creation because he is the beginning of the resurrection of the dead. Paul uses the language of the firstborn again here. Notice it says uh, in verse 18, he is the head of the body of the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. The firstborn from the dead. But again, this does not mean he did not exist and then was birthed into the new creation. Rather, he has always existed in his perfection, but through his death on the cross, he took on our sin and became one with the brokenness and rebellion of the first creation. And by his supreme power over all that exists, he was able to defeat sin, death, and hell, and rise from the dead, proving that he had defeated the kingdom of darkness. He is supreme as the first to resurrect into new Eternal life. There had been those who resurrected, even in the Old Testament, but they died again. Jesus alone is the first to resurrect into new eternal life. And because of this position as first, Paul next says, third, that Jesus is preeminent in everything that emerges as part of the new creation. He says there in Colossians, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Friends, is he preeminent in everything in your life? Is he primary in everything in your life? If not, we are not operating in reality. Jesus is preeminent in everything that emerges as part of the new creation. In other words, he is the prototype, just as he was in the first creation over mankind. He is now the prototype over the new humanity that will emerge from the church age, ready for eternity future. This was core to the Christology that Paul was trying to teach the early church, that thought of Jesus as a human rabbi in the old order. No, he was more than that. He was the firstborn of a new order of redemption. Notice some of the things that Paul says in his other letters uh, that speak to this same idea. This is from Romans 8:29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. He's the prototype in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Notice what he says to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Friends, we can have hope in eternal life because what has been started will not be stopped. Jesus is the firstborn of the new creation. Therefore, the new creation is rolling ahead. Pandora's box, if you will, has been opened and it will not be shut. And so you and I can stand firm in the hope and guarantee of eternal life because Jesus rose from the dead. This is the good news of the gospel, is it not? Jesus is supreme over the resurrection. And this is why we can say that the new creation is here but not yet. It has been inaugurated but not completed. Jesus is preeminent and supreme over all the new creation and it is rolling forward and it will come to completion. And this new creation over which he is the head, it is the church, made up of those who are being conformed to his image in the new creation. That is what sanctification is, is being changed more and more into Jesus Christ. And as Christ leads this new humanity that is being sanctified, this ecclesia, this church, scattered as local congregations throughout the world, is now the touchpoint between heaven and earth. The assembly of the church has become the temple, Broken apart and scattered throughout the world, because Christ is supreme over the church, and he exists in the church. And therefore, within the church He is rejoining heaven and Earth. This is all temple language, brothers and sisters. And so it's in Christ's body that the fullness of God dwells as a new and redeemed temple. We dwell as a touch point between heaven and Earth. Because Jesus is supreme in his ability to be the temple of God. God fully dwelt in him and filled him, just as Isaiah's vision of God filling the temple in the Old Testament. And he then poured out his spirit into us, into the church, so that we could be the touchpoint between heaven and earth. And Paul is referencing this temple language as he says next in verse 19, For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. For Paul and any Jewish Christians, the dwelling place of God with man was the physical temple in Jerusalem. To say otherwise was anathema. But now Christ has become that temple. And so for any Colossian that wanted to be one with God, no earthly temple, no pagan false god could be that touchpoint of heaven and earth. Only Christ is supreme in his ability to be the connection between heaven and earth. Next, Paul goes on to note that Jesus alone is supreme in his ability to bring forth his new creation. He's supreme in this ability because he has defeated sin and death through the blood of his sacrifice on the cross. He is supreme as the reconciling sacrifice. Notice what it says there. It says, verse 20, "...through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross." And notice the parallel of the first creation. By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth. And this gave him the ability to be supreme in authority over all authorities of earth as well as spiritual authorities. How much more now is Christ supreme in his redemptive authority? Therefore, Paul says next, Christ alone is the one who can bring forth peace in the midst of the old creation that has been given over to chaos and sin. The Jewish mystics among Colossae were spreading lies amongst the congregation that angel worship and Jewish tradition would bring forth redemption. But Paul was clearly declaring that only Christ would be able to bring forth the shalom prophesied by the Old Testament. He alone is supreme as the reconciling sacrifice. There is no sacrifice that you and I can offer, no amount of religious work or merit that we can present that will bring peace to our souls. Jesus alone is supreme as the reconciling sacrifice. Six, Paul states that Christ alone is able to overcome our hostility and rebellion that has exiled us from the presence of God. He says in verse 21 that we were alienated from God and hostile in mind towards him, the result of which was evil deeds that broke his law. And for those that break the law of the reigning authority, exile from the kingdom is the just penalty. For you and I, that meant eternal separation from God in the abode created for rebelling angels known as hell. This was to be our eternal exile. But Christ was able to overcome our hostility toward God, where we attempted to rule and reign on our own. Christ took on our sin by way of his sacrificial death in our place. And in so doing, he was able to cancel the rightful decree that we be exiled from God. And we have been brought near now through the blood of Christ's atoning sacrifice. Christ alone is, his, is supreme in his ability to reconcile us when we instead deserved exile. And finally, seventh, Christ is supreme in his place as high priest to present us to God in the temple of his people, the church, as sanctified, holy, blameless, and above reproach. Take a look there. It says in verse 21, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Only the high priest could claim these qualities for his people on the day of atonement in which he offered a purifying sacrifice for his people to Yahweh. And so not only is Christ supreme as the temple in which the fullness of God is pleased to dwell, not only is he supreme in his place as the very sacrifice which cleanses us from our sins, but Christ is also the perfect, spotless high priest. He alone performs the very worship and intercession necessary so that we might draw near the holy of holies and bow before the very throne of the living God. He alone can accomplish this because he is supreme as high priest. In his redemption of old creation into new, Jesus has reclaimed the cosmos that has always been his. It was his in the beginning. We tainted it with our sin and rebellion, and he reclaimed it because he is supreme. Even your sin and even mine, even the whole body of sin, performed in hostility against him across all time and space, even that is not enough to remove his supremacy over the universe. No matter what you have done, no matter what has been done against you, Christ is greater. He is unrivaled in his supremacy. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Friend, if you are here today and you do not know Christ as Lord, as King of your life, as supreme authority over your life, then you have a future eternity that is nothing but exile away from his loving presence in torment and terror, in a place that is meant for those who stand in eternal hostility against their God. I beg of you this morning to repent, to accept his loving invitation to call you near, to cover your sins with the blood of his cross, and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. If that's you and you wanna do that, we would love to talk with you, any of the pastors would love to talk with you about what it is to follow Christ. Because there is no other spiritual answer. There is no other path up the mountain. Jesus alone is supreme. He is the only answer. No spiritual novelty, no spiritual trend or tradition comes even close. No spiritual program or worship experience or even a spiritual community will get you to that place of spiritual fulfillment. Christ alone, is unrivaled in his supremacy and unrivaled in his ability to reconcile us to God. In Christ alone and among his people is the fullness of peace with God to be found. Friends, don't look past this. But Paul remembers that he is writing to a people who are tempted to find solace in something else, anything other than Christ. And so he finishes with a warning that can best be summed up as, only the supreme christ can hold you fast only the supreme christ can hold you fast please read verse 23 with me after stating the supremacy of christ and stating the supremacy of his reconciliation he says if indeed verse 23 you continue in the faith stable and steadfast not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Paul has just clearly told the local assembly at Colossae that they have been made positionally holy and blameless through the sacrifice of Christ. But the inaugurated kingdom now is not the fullness of what is to come. And so every Christian who is holy in position before God needs to walk through sanctification to become equally holy in actuality, not just in position. If they do not persevere and continue enduring amidst the temptation and trial around them, they will not experience the reconciliation with the Father that Christ has won for them. And this warning, friends, still stands firmly for us. Does this mean that one who has been reconciled by God and adopted into his family can fall away? The answer is absolutely not. Friends, do you realize the lunacy of this text right here being used to back the opinion that we can lose our salvation? We just walked through eight verses, 14 qualities testifying to the supreme power of God. You think he can lose his own? No. Can a supreme God lose one of those that verse 13 says he has delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son? The answer is no. And this is backed by even more evidence. When Christ's people are called in 312 in Colossians, the chosen ones. The word for the chosen ones in the Greek is electoi, from which we get the word elect. One who is truly Christ's cannot be lost, cannot lose their salvation, and cannot fall away. But the very means by which Christ accomplishes that is through the connection point between his indwelling spirit and the warning of his word. Those who are his will heed this warning to not fall to the false theologies they are being fed. It will not give them license to do as they please. Instead, it will provide a holy fear that will keep them close to Christ and away from heresy. They will become stable or founded, and so will we, and steadfast. Those that hear his warning will not shift from that which is truly our rock of foundation. What is that rock? It is the hope of the gospel of Christ's work which Paul has detailed here so masterfully and for which Paul has become a minister. Friends, we have unlocked and unpacked much of this, but Paul's message is simple. Christ alone is supreme over all. And only in his sacrifice can reconciliation with God be achieved. He has achieved it. We simply need to hold fast to it. Only the supreme and unrivaled Christ can hold you fast in your faith, and only he can provide the fullness of reconciliation with the Father that you are looking for. Dear brothers and sisters, why on earth do we look to anything else for spiritual fulfillment? Why do we look for anything else to be fulfillment at all? It's like me living in the Pacific Northwest and taking majesty for granted. So much of our life is spent standing amidst the majesty of Christ's supremacy here among people that he is saved by his grace, and yet we take it as if it were nothing. We're constantly scrambling for something else to fill us and to fill our lives. And this is because so much of our Christianity is formed around the heresy that we are supreme. As if the cosmos were initiated so I might have life. As if all history has come to its culmination in my story. As if all God's redemptive work was so that Christ might be honored to stand in my presence in eternity. As if the gathering is only provided so that I might be fed, I might feel better. As if the body of Christ exists for my love and my glory. As if the purpose of all existence is so that I might be successful, healthy, wealthy, and comfortable. Friends, how much of your Christianity is formed around the false idea that you are supreme? How much of that do you need to repent from today? Brothers and sisters, how desperately we need to sit at the base of this majestic and colossal truth that Christ alone is supreme. And all of creation is meant for one purpose, and that is to give Him glory. To know Christ, to intimately know Christ and surrender your life to Him is to know and testify and live in a way that reflects His supremacy. Is His supremacy unrivaled in your life or are there things competing for that supremacy? Friends, this is my prayer for us, my prayer for you that you would know his supreme love, that you would know his supreme grace, his supreme mercy, his supreme wisdom, his supreme faithfulness, as they were all so apparently evidenced on the cross of Calvary. That you would know his supreme artistry in your life as he builds you to be a masterpiece, not for your own glory, but for his. He alone is the answer and fulfillment for which you have been looking. In what ways, dear brothers and sisters, have you glanced past the gospel to try and find some other means of gaining fulfillment? We must stop looking elsewhere for satisfaction. I pray that like the prophet Isaiah, we would have a vision and understanding of Christ lifted up on the throne, his presence filling the temple of the church so that we might realize our neediness and sinfulness and we might fall to our knees before him and say, I am here, send me as you will. Use me as you will. Do with my life as you will, Lord. You are my unrivaled and supreme Lord. That is my prayer for you. Friends, what holds the place of unrivaled Lord of your life today? If it is anything other than Christ this morning, let's go to him together in repentance and rightfully restore him as Lord of our lives. When we do so, we will realize that Jesus is the answer in every situation. When you are weary, look to Christ who alone can provide supreme rest. When you are sad and depressed, look to Christ who alone can provide supreme joy. When you feel alone, look to Christ who alone can provide supreme intimacy. When you are angry, look to Christ who alone can provide supreme peace. When in conflict, look to Christ who alone has purchased reconciliation and provided you and I with the ministry of reconciliation. When you're in sin, look to Christ who alone can convict you at your core and provide supreme forgiveness and begin the process of supreme change. When you are joy-filled, look to Christ as the one to whom you need to express supreme thanks. When you are lacking purpose, look to Christ who has given your life purpose to be set apart to worship him and enjoy him forever. Dearest flock, I pray this morning we would look to Christ, for he alone can hold you fast so that you might stand firm on the rock of his salvation. Friends, strive to align your thinking, your actions, your relationships, and your reality with the truth of his supremacy. And if you do so, you will never shift from the hope that he has provided through his death, resurrection, and enthronement. Let's look to Christ now and proclaim his unrivaled supremacy as we remember the supremacy of his reconciliation through the Lord's Supper. But before we do, would you stand with me together and let's proclaim these truths with one voice so that all the spiritual realm might hear it and stand in awe of our King. I've taken Colossians 1, 15 through 23 and adjusted it slightly at the very end so it's saying we as opposed to you, but I want us to stand and speak this as if it's a creed because this is what it was intended for, was to be given as a creed for the church to know who Christ is. So would you read it with me now? Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And we who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed we continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that we have heard. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this masterpiece that our brother Paul placed in his letter to the Colossians. Lord, we are truly, truly mindful of the fact that we do not deserve to know you In fact, we have been so hostile in mind that we have decided to forcefully ignore you in our lives. And yet you in your loving kindness and grace and mercy reach out to us and continually call us home to yourself. And so we thank you, Lord, by the sheer grace that is shown by the fact that we have yet another chance on this Sunday to go to your table, to repent of our sin, to stand firm in the faith that you have given us, and in the choice that you have made to elect us as your own, and to give you all praise and glory. Lord, as your people, we want to declare not only to Salem and Kaiser and the surrounding areas, but also to the entire spiritual realm that you are Lord and that the kingdom of darkness has failed and is slowly moving towards destruction. We thank you, Jesus, that you are our Savior, you are our friend, and most of all, you are our supreme Lord and King. Today, Lord, through your otherworldly Holy Spirit and power, we pray that you would change our hearts that much more into your image so that we can reflect this in our words, in our relationships, and in how we live life. Thank you, God, for convicting us this morning, for encouraging us, and for getting our eyes off of ourselves so that we can look to you, the beauty of all creation, the pinnacle of all creation. We thank you, Jesus, and we now pray that you would be here amongst your people, dwelling, filling the temple of your people, as we go and remember your
0: reconciliation at the table of communion. In Jesus' name, amen.